Welcome to the third podcast about Much Ado About Nothing. Um, so we're talking about Act 3. We are probably going to do this in two parts, um, mainly because we are running out of time today. <laughs> um, and so we'll do it. This one will probably go for about 20 minutes, and the second half um, will also go for 20 minutes. Um, so I'm joined today with fellow English um, co-worker, Miss um, Faulkner. Hello. Okay, so let's get straight into Act 3. So Act 3... I think is the climax. You know, we've got five acts, five act narrative structure. Um, but do you think that this is the climax of the play? Hmm. I think um, in a sense, it plot-wise, it could be seen as the climax of the play. And I know because of the main plots have been set up, enacted, and we also, the act, con- act two, it concludes with, act, act three concludes with, the plot not being foiled. So, you know, the watch come in, they don't succeed in stopping the wedding being um, transformed into what it is. They have the information, but they don't do anything with it. Mm. So in terms of from here on in, you could say that it's falling action because it's the the resolution of those earlier, that earlier question of will mm. the deception work and the deception is worked. And But I think that the emotional intensity for me comes in the, the next scene, Act 4, Scene 1, which is Hero's response to being publicly shamed, mm. which is the very dramatic act of swooning um, and the, the recrimination and the way that plays out. So I feel like, in terms of the tension of the play, how will it all pan out for the audience is part, perhaps seeing that seen um, mm. and witnessing that public humiliation but it depends a little bit on which arc you're following mm. and I, I think I think it's a really good pick up you know um, for most of the students here that started here in year nine where hopefully you remember when we did much ado about nothing we I mean not much to do with Merchant of Venice <laughs> um, in year nine we p- pulled out significant pairings and plotted out their own roller coaster and obviously we can p- pull out um, Benedict and Beatrice you're not going to get much from Claudio and Hero doing that. And I think it's probably maybe more worthwhile about those individual stakes and perhaps tracking that throughout the play. Because while in terms of plot, I think this is the climax because will they, won't they, when are they actually going to get together? Because, you know, you know, after we haven't actually seen Beatrice and Benedict meet up after they've been both been mm. um, fooled. And the whole, is a dogberry going to come in to save um, Hero in time? Yeah. Which obviously we learned in Act 4, Scene 1, that is not the case. Um, but the other question here is, you know, um, I've did this in the past two podcasts. And what is the importance of doing perhaps a structural analysis? Or is it worthwhile to pursue a structural analysis within your VCAR, end of year exam response or even for the SAC? Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to do that because it speaks to the, the high-end responses they're looking for, which is an understanding of the way in which a text has been constructed. But it is a construction, it has a structure, and it, um, for particular purposes, and the way that I see it being useful in an essay situation is if you want to be talking about a particular value, if your essay question is about, um, is this a triumph of love, for example, that you want to be able to reference, structurally speaking, that um, it is absolutely because the climactic moment arguably falls in this particular act and that shows us X, Y, Z, versus no, it's not, because actually um, where this moment happens or this declaration of true love happens on act four scene, whatever, it's anticlimactic by that point because the main action wasn't about love at all. It was about honour. So it's important. If you can can talk about 
um, where those moments happen in structural analysis, then you are working from an outside the text perspective with a lot of certainty. It's a mm. good trick to have up your sleeve, as it were. And I find, I find it interesting when we talk about... Um, the, I'm just going to pick up for the students here... We didn't just say the middle of the play or towards the end. We're saying climatic, anticlimactic. That, that's, the, I guess, the meta language mm. they're looking for um, in terms of describing what you're seeing and then analysing. Because it is a part of description, yes, uh, but then we also need to kind of think about the analysis that comes with that structural um, comment that you yeah. want to make. And, you know, you may not be able to do it for every question, but I think, you know, if you pull out, you know, pulling out VCAR questions about Shakespeare, you'll start to notice thematic character questions coming up all the time and being able to track the characters is quite important. Yeah. All right, let's go into the scene here, Act 3, Scene 1. Um, and I find it interesting, I guess, that... I mean, I'm not, you know, even though Shakespeare may not have written Act 3, Scene 1 himself, but we've decided that this is where Act 3, Scene 1 is, which kind of really fits at the end of Act 2. And I find it interesting that the men have ended an act and this is the beginning. I'm not too sure why they would do that, but how do you think it kind of speaks to each other? Why do we start with this moment for a climax, climactic scene? Uh, because... It's the counterpoint, isn't it, to the, the male plot and how it plays out. And I think it's interesting if you look at it in that sense as to how this one plays out. Because the male plot, you know, you have the soliloquy from Benedict and it ends with a soliloquy from Benedict. So he bookends it in that sense. Mm, we see him mm. before and we see him after. And part of the comedy is how rapidly he changes his position mm, from yes, one to yes. the other. And we have the song from Balthazar as well in, the, in, that, uh, in that last um, scene of Act 2, which makes it a really long scene and it takes them a lot more time to set up it seems their trap than it takes um act three scene one does not um it doesn't take them as long and we only have uh, beatrice with her short soliloquy at the end to interact with for us to see who she is in that moment mm. um, and the contrast between the way the men set up their plot and the way the women do is quite interesting too there's a lot of there's a lot of similar language there in terms of the um the hunting and the trapping, right? The pleasant angling, the mm, treacherous mm. bait. So it picks up on that sense of the hunting and the snare and that um, gives us that sense of unease, the hunting language, that they're hunting them for sport, right? And yeah. Don Pedro makes that very clear yeah. in his language, yeah. that this is about entertainment and sport. And I think of the English nobility and their excessiveness <laughs> um, and that now their quarry or their prey is, uh, are two people who are ostensibly their friends and, and social peers. And that's, I think, suppose, well, it makes me feel unsettled. I don't know whether that's true for well, the original think, audience. Well, I think, I think you and I have talked about how Don, like I've talked to my class about how I think Don Pedro is quite slimy. Yeah. Um, because he, he is manipulating. It is a game. Yeah. I think that's reinforced by the idea of this, that idea of trapping the arrows on the last, the arrows, the... Um, you know, what's the thing he says in Act 1 where he's like, I'll take her take her prisoner? Like, who yeah, talks yeah, about like, someone? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, why not just say, you know, I'll speak to her gently, but it's I'll take her the, prisoner. With the force of my armour. And I'll unclasp. And yeah. I, think, I think that's quite interesting there. And the, you know... Let it, that's the scene that I would see. The sport will be when they hold one an opinion of each other's dirty and no such matter. That's a scene I would see, which will merely be a dumb show. And dumb show is in muted, as in we're just watching them perform a particular act of being in love. This idea of scenes, and also um, Don, Pedro, Don John refers to that as well as in sequel, that idea that they are so far above the social order that they mm. are using other people for their sport and 
puppet masters, you know, that they're manipulating them in that way. And isn't that a... That is a complex essay to write, comparing, <laughs> like, the, sim- the Don Pedro and Don John are almost similar in a manner, whereas... They are. And in some ways, I think I'm a bit more forgiving of Don John because he is so... I guess direct and plain, but this is my values. I don't know if you can write that in an essay, but he's quite direct and very clear with his intent. Whereas Don Pedro, I feel, is using his social status to conduct these games yeah. and endorsing this and is this is the way society has to yeah, be. Yeah, but also that he's controlling it, right? Because he's like, well, they're going to marry. I'm, I'm marrying people off left, right, and centre, mm. but I don't take a wife. I don't have to take a wife because those rules don't apply to me. That's I'm true. at the top of this hierarchy and I don't have to, f- uh, I don't follow the rules. I feel the hint of a queer reading there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to take a wife. I'm above society. That's right. <laughs> I am above and outside of normal rules. I do what I like. And, and no I think, you know, in, in this act, even though it's not in this scene, he does say, um, I would for thee and I will fall for thee. And uh, I put that up as a writing question, a prompt. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, it really encapsulates his values because I have done this and I'll fall for you. You know, the captain of the yeah. ship. That's the imagery I have because that is the social order. It is the honourable thing to do, even yeah. though, not really, in my opinion, it's now Claudio's problem. But, you know, Don Pedro <laughs> wants to make it his problem by saying that lie, that honour, that reputation um, piece is in there. And he piles on at the end too. When, as soon as Don Pedro says... Uh, Don John says, rather, um, you know, she's not what you think. And the way that they very quickly pile on with their language there Mm. um, and how quickly he gets on board that sense of, well, if it's your problem, it's my problem. So, yeah. And, you know, here, if you do not trust what you see, Don Pedro does his little riddle. If I see anything tonight and as I wooed for thee to obtain her, I would join with thee to disgrace her. And I would... So there's that sense of joining in mm. that your troubles are my troubles um that reinforces that sense too so i think back to back to the scene one we kind of diverted there with don pedro <laughs> oh, and well. jumping and jumping and jumping to scene two which is which is oh, fine we we now see this really um i guess really crafted it, it's kind of for me a really big um tone change in the play like we've seen iambic with um the the interaction between claudio and don pedro yeah. about the wooing but this is all of a sudden we've gone from mainly um prose and this fast speech and you know this yeah. kind of plain speaking to all of a sudden this very curated orchard yeah um picnic idealistic imagery honeysuckles ripened by the mm. sun forbid the sun to enter and um, even Ursula does the same kind of cut with her golden... The pleasantest angling is to see the fish cut with her golden oars, the silver stream. They're very um, romantic and lyrical in the way in which they speak. It's not crude, it's not sexual, it um, speaks to something that's highly romanticised and <sighs> softened, I suppose. Mm, yeah. And, and conventionally, they're falling into line, literally. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think you know this speaks to we haven't heard from Hero. Yeah, her most of her conversation is like in my mind is giggling along with her father. Oh yes, that's true. Um, and I think here now we see her um, quite controlled. She's measured, and I think in many ways this poetic language that you point, pointed out, that lyrical language here, speaks to her. Um, probably status in society and that she yeah. does in terms of an essay she's fulfilling societal expectations and I think um, the way to and you know we and if we contrast that with Beatrice there's actually quite strong evidence that she is um, a lady 
yeah. in all the sense in That's this time right. frame. And she I think is chaste and she is obedient and she is high-minded mm, exactly. in that sense, right? I pursue the arts because I'm of nobility, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. sense. I and can play the piano and, I've been, and I can dance and I can speak French and I am a marriageable woman in that sense of nobility where Beatrice is not mm. trying to be that thing at all. And because I know in class where, or well, my class anyway, we're looking at a lot of Beatrice and Benedict, but I think in this moment, and the hero says very few lines, it's probably worth pursuing what hero <coughs> has to say in contrast to Beatrice mm. um, and how she's saying it. And I think that is the way, you know, we talk, we'll be talking to you soon about layering examples in your paragraph. And I think this is a good way to kind of think about that, the hero. Because actually later on in Act 3, Scene 4, I think it is, when um, Beatrice talk about being sick. Yeah. <coughs> and in fact... Hero is having her own conversation there, you know. I talked about in class um, about how Hero's um, comments are almost like she's not listening to her cousin and her handmaiden and she's on, you know. She's going, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. And then Hero says, these gloves account sent me, they are an excellent perfume. Yeah, she's only interested in what she looks like and her, yeah. her externals and her marriage now and her status. She's yeah. elevated in status, he's saying. Yeah. That she, that sense of... At first, Beatrix speaks for her, <coughs> or yeah. speaks. She doesn't speak over her. But when you expect in those, that first scene, when you expect Hero to speak, Beatrice does the male thing and gives her advice. Mm. You know, if you if you say father, it's her job to curtsy and say yeah, father as it yeah. please you. But if he's not handsome, say father as it please me. So Beatrix gives her advice in a space where Hero is supposed to speak, mm. right? And I think that you can argue then in Act Four, scene in Act Three, scene four. That hero is taking a step above her because she... Um, she gets a pretty dress. That's right. She's now elevated above and, her in status because and I, yeah, she's and I think, sorted. And I think in terms of layering examples as well, in Act 2, when they finally agree to the marriage of Claudio and Hero, all the questions like, do you take this man? She's never answering for herself. And I, mm. I believe Beatrice is the one that says... You have nothing left to say. Kiss her, which yeah. then mirrors something else that happens in that That's five. Right. And I find that really interesting. And then when we do hear Hero, it is this, um, it's lyrical and perhaps even vapid. You know, I, I was talking to my class about how the dress scene for me is really frustrating <laughs> because it's just like, how pretty is my dress? Yeah, and for me it is as well because it undercuts Act 3, Scene 1 and because I'm trying very hard to resuscitate Hero from being just a passive kind of passive, not particularly smart, smart woman who just does as she's told. So I know she's very compliant and I'm trying to read into her silence uh, either defiance or an awareness of the role she has to play and that she keeps her um, true self hidden for her public, for the private mm. space with her with her gentlemen. Like Act 3, Scene 1 is the most honest that we see Hero because she's with the two women with whom she's most comfortable and she calls her Ursley. You know, she's got the little nicknames in the diminutives for these women so the sense that she can only be um, unconstrained more in in a, a, a personal sphere, but at the same time, she's always in a public space. She's still in the orchard. She's still being overheard. She's still fulfilling the roles uh, that are expected of her, except suddenly she seems to have a lot more going on between her ears than before. Mm. And so it frustrates me then that then the dressing <laughs> becomes so vapid because here she's, you know, she has some um, awareness. And look, I love this, this line. I'm hanging my whole hat on this line. Um... Ursula says, Does, doth not a gentleman deserve as full of fortune as a bed as ever Beatrice or couch upon? Oh, God of love, I know he doth deserve as much as may be yielded to a man. And I'm hanging my hat on that equivocation. Yeah. There's a sense that um, this isn't I'm giving everything 
as much as may be yielded to a man, and that perhaps is a sin, that there is something about her which she doesn't even share in the outside world, that she can't share, and she'll never yield that. Yeah, because I think it's interesting, you know, we're jumping a bit ahead here towards the end of the play, but, you know, when she has that I'm no longer hero... Yeah. ...is an interesting line to have, because I think, I think for me, there's an element here where perhaps Shakespeare is hinting at the idea of what happens when you just conform to the social norm without question. That she's lost her sense that of self. Lo- yeah, exactly. And I think that's the part of the um, construction of Claudia and Hero's relationship. It is based on nothing. Um, and, you know, I actually have not done this yet, but we've talked about the sonnet, the marriage of true mm. minds here, because ultimately we can all probably agree that what he values is the marriage of Beatrice and Benedict. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk, there's a bit, the controversy with that is that, you know, after the, her last line said to Beatrice is to just kiss him. <laughs> Peace, shut or up. stop thy mouth. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think, I think that is also interesting that Beatrice succumbs. And I wonder if there's a... Um, you know, is he advocating for women? Is it a critique on marriage? Is it a critique on love? Like, what do we, what do we think is going on here with um, that Me hero? Personally. Yeah, <laughs> you personally. I think it's a critique on marriage. I think that the, we, we know, I think marriage, I'm going with the line, marriage is a social conspiracy. And I think this play shows that marriage is a form of social control. Um, and Don Pedro engineers that and the degree mm. to which they accept it and why they accept it yeah. and why they, you know, Benedict's line, people, the world must be peopled, you know, that um, there's a sense of playing the role in society. If you want to be part of it, you have to play the game. Yeah. And that Beatrix um, chooses to play the game. Um, but I think the the fact that Benedict has the final lines in the play and he usurps Don Pedro in the end speaks also to a kind of heteronormativity of saying, well, I'm married. <laughs> I am That's now the true. man here, yeah. right? You're unmarried. He dwells on that. You're not married... I am, and he promises that, you know, he has the resolving the final lines of the play, and I think that speaks to the idea that marriage, um, mm. he steps into the role that is expected of him, mm. and, and by doing so, he has gained some power, just as Hero has gained mm. power by getting married over Beatrix. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I just want to clarify, Miss Faulkner's talking about usurping his status in the play, That's not right. in the society. Yeah, Don't not actually his role, but his power mm. in, the, in mm. the, the world of Messina. Because the game is now ended. That's the, right. the, the game is played out and, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Um, so the next thing, I guess, is we return back to both the, the prodding of both Beatrice and Benedict. Mm. So now now they know the, the deception has happened. Um, and here we now have, we've got toothaches, we've got a flu... Um, we've got yeah. to it again. Love is a malady, people. <laughs> Love is a disease. It makes you sick. <laughs> this is a very cynical, non-romantic marriage as a social conspiracy reading of the play. Um, but also the idea that lo- you're being lovesick, you know, yeah, yeah. you're thinking about the person. And, um, I think there's an implication here that they're both so caught up in thinking about the other person they're not resting properly until yeah, they sleepless nights that is, that is Beatrice so... is writing loads of poetry <laughs> up all night 20 times a night she's writing poetry and so amorous it's got Beatrix and Benedict between the sheets that's a piece that Hero finds so you know they are their night is their sleep is disturbed is that what yeah. we're saying well, that's what, I, it's not explicit but it's an, I yeah, think it's yeah. an implicate well they do I, say it beforehand yeah, don't yeah, they absolutely Lo- an extended metaphor she can't, being um, lovesick being lovesick and yeah. I think that's interesting or you know marriage is a social conspiracy discuss <laughs> Feel free. We'd love to know the answer to that essay, by the way. There's a challenge there out there for all you um, English English literature students. I look forward to seeing a feminist reading uh, about marriage being a social conspiracy. But, you know, I find this Act 3 scene too, 
My favorite quote in this, because I think I hate Claudio, mm-hmm. um, to show a child his new coat and, and forbid, forbid him, him to wear, wear it. it. And to equate that to marriage makes me feel so sick that, oh, being married is like getting a new piece of clothing. Yeah. And I think, I think for me... But well, is it being married or is it Hero that's the new piece of clothing? <laughs> well, Hero, well, he says, um, nay, that'll be a great style. So the new, new gloss of your marriage is to show a child his new coat and forbid him to wear it until his marriage is so finished. Until quite, his, yeah. yeah. I think, but you know, I think Claudio is a child. But it's interesting too because I think Claudio is a child, and I think his naivety is, um, you know, he's kind of characterised as a child all the way through. But that, the idea also of fashion, right? The the new coat and the fashion and the mocking of the people who are too who change the the shape of their hat and yeah. who are fickle Ooh, in a sense, right? From older, from older scene. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of the new coat that um, it's merely an a, a something that you try on or you put on. Mm being married yeah. like you know spend time with your coat I just <laughs> that's what because what he's saying yeah, I'm not going to bring much. you with me because you need to spend time yeah, with your, your new coat. coat yeah enjoying your new coat and trying it on right putting it on for size what do you like <coughs> as a married man how are you how do you behave and that's a, and that that kind of links right back to when they're mocking Benedict mm. for coming in and having shaved and now he's you know got some perfume and he's shaved his beard and he looks younger and um that idea of changing their external appearance to try and to show that they have had an internal transformation, mm, mm. but the extent to which you think those things are real. Because the imagery that comes up to with in terms of the shaving, you know, we've got Cupid, we've got all these um, Dutchmen, Frenchmen, Germanmen, <laughs> German. Spaniard. Um, again, I just I feel that it's uh, like it's a strategy, right? Like it's a war strategy that Don Pedro's kind of like trying to hint at that this is the way you get love is by changing your physical changing appearance. your uniform, as it were. Changing, yeah, and I think I think that's quite interesting that that's the kind of is that what he that's what ah so what he brings to the table, and in fact it's kind of almost the point of this scene because I feel that Don when Don John enters and says. And sets up the ploy to be yeah. trapped. I think it's not as captivating, or maybe that's just me as a reader, because mm. maybe I'm invested in Benedict a bit more. I don't know what your take on that is. I feel like it's, you know, I find it quite hard to follow some of the jesting of that, and some of it I just like. Really, is that what it means? I don't want to think about that. That's really quite disgusting and derogatory. Um, so I feel like most of it's about setting out the male bonding, the kind of. The conventions mm. of that particular group of men and how Don John stands apart from it, in the the way he um, always has a purpose when he enters and he's not part of that social order. Mm, you know, that's he's true. he's a side and outside of it, but yet he still has enough status. And I find it intriguing that, you know, and I think the first half establishes just how much, how close they are. Right, mm. the 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 way they're mocking Benedict, the um. The ease with which they speak to each other, mm. the repartee, um, they go quite hard. And I think most people agree that probably the people who um, are harshest with you or can say the, the coolest things are often your intimate friends. We allow them yeah, that sure. space. And we see that. And then we see, you know, the second grouping of men. And we see how that even though they know Don John is a villain and he's pre- pretty much under house arrest, they don't question him. 
they pile on. They're very quick. Oh, day untowardly turned. Oh, mischief strangely thwarted. Oh, plague right well presented. They fall into line very quickly in disputing, in, in agreeing very quickly that they're going to shame her. And I think, you know, that it, it, as soon as Don John enters and someone in my class picked up that it is a bit of social performance because he doesn't go straight to Claudio. He addresses Don Pedro first. So the conversation turns from this jovial jesting at Benedict and the, boy, mm. the boys' club. I don't know what the formal way to say boys' club is, but um, <laughs> because it is, you know, there's that notion yeah. that, you know, that they're being just, they're kind of being disgusting, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and crude, and then all of a sudden John, John enters and that social performance turns on. Yeah. Um, the addressing, he performs the rank and, yeah. like, addresses the status of the person first, but we... We're going to have to leave this. I think this we're, we're going to pause it here. And when we come back um, to part two, uh, I think we'll finish off a bit of this conversation. And then we'll start talking about the relevance of Dogberry. Yeah. And his malapropisms. I can't say I that know, word. I, I can write it down, though. That seems more important. That is, sounds, that is <laughs> more important. So I'm going to upload this one now and um, have a listen. And then part two will be coming to your way soon. Thank you.